chatting with Alicia Krauss all about feminism, homeschooling, and the importance of conservatism, particularly for women. All this and more on today's episode of the Classically Abbey podcast. excited to have Alicia on the show. I'm so glad you're here. How are you doing? Good. Long time no see. Yeah, it feels like it's been forever. Actually, I don't know the last time we saw each other in person, but I've known you for years. Yeah, I think it might have been I was pregnant with my third and now I'm pregnant with my fourth. Like, you oh my gosh. Wire office with your, I think, then fiance. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's exactly right. So how's LA treating you? (laughs) Good. I mean, this weird rain we're having, I told my husband the other day, I'm like, did we just like transplant to Seattle and nobody told us? (laughs) But Oh my gosh. I think it's been good because the aqueducts are filling up. Uh, It's been good because it exposes government incompetence, but it's been bad because I'm sure that you've heard in the San Bernardino Mountains, like Arrowhead, Big Bear area, I think there's something like 11,000 residents stranded and without power. And Gavin Newsom is sipping margaritas at a five-star resort in Baja. So that's great. Of course. Of course he is. (laughs) So I'm really excited to get into it. We're going to even talk, or even going to touch on this topic, on you staying in LA. And But let's get started here because not all of my subscribers know what you do. And you have been in the conservative movement for your entire career, uh, kicking butt and taking names. But can you tell my subscribers how you got started and what your mission is? Yeah, I've always been a political geek. I'm a homeschool nerd from the Bible Belt whose mom ran for public office twice, who was the chairwoman of the GOP. She'd write a weekly uh op-ed in the local newspaper, tackling cultural and political issues of the week. Uh, So that's kind of always been my environment. My paternal grandfather was a district judge. And I remember being interested in watching the OJ Simpson trial as a little kid. I'm 37, so I'm a grandma millennial and a geriatric pregnancy, by the way, in case you didn't know that fact. Um, and, And I just remember just being fascinated with news and politics from a very young age. So at 18, I moved to New York City to go to college. And had always had a job. So I was bored just going to school full time and Googled internships and got started interning at WABC, uh, which is the radio station that originally syndicated Sean Hannity, Mark Levin, and I believe even Rush Limbaugh and uh, felt like always loved talk radio. And that, I don't know, I joke, I dug my grave. So now I have to lie in it. That was at 18 and I haven't left the conservative media world since. And I would say that I think My purpose has definitely shifted. I think in the past, it's been a supporting role for other people and other talent, whether it was Sean or your brother. Um, But then weirdly being like on air colleagues with, with people as well, never anticipated that change. And I think now being freelance and consulting and speaking with YAF and at conferences and stuff, uh, I think really my mission is to speak for those who can't speak for themselves because college campuses specifically in the United States are the battleground. Uh, We're seeing all these cultural battles that we're having to fight uh, politically and religiously and for parental rights. And so I really appreciate and enjoy it when I hear from women, most of my audience is 80% women between the ages of 18 and 45. And when I hear from them, hey, thanks for saying that thing because I took it to my mommy and me play date and I was able to like, say what you said and be like, Hey, look at what this chick said and open up a conversation with my liberal friend or, Hey, can you come to our campus and talk about these issues? Because I can't talk about it or I could get expelled. Um, So being a voice, I think for the voiceless and if little old me can do that, then I think anybody can. That's an amazing mission. And I think that's so inspiring. Uh, I feel similarly in a lot of ways. I'm actually speaking with YAF uh, on a campus in a couple months, which I'm excited about, but um, it, it is, it's so important for us to show women, college students, that there is a place for you and that you can speak on these topics. 
if you're brave enough or if you're not if you're in a situation where, you know, even if you were brave, it would be totally inappropriate for you to speak on it. There are people out there who support you and who believe in what you're saying. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, every single time I say something like that, the mainstream would dub as controversial, uh, like men cannot be women. I hear from women in areas and I tell people, I'm like, listen, if you can avoid going to politics or be a talking head, like, please go do something else. If I were smarter, I'd be doing something else. <laughs> but if I could go back and change my name and, and not drop out of college, maybe I'd be doing something else. But uh, I'm doing what I'm doing. And but we need other people to be doing what they're doing. And I often hear from women in STEM and women in tech in the Bay Area that work for social media companies that are showrunners and executive producers of mainstream content that you and I watch every single day, people in fashion and finance that are like, hey, I love my job. I believe like this is my purpose and my passion, but thank you for speaking out on this because it enabled me to go to HR and be like, hey, why did you have this caveat about LGBTQ stuff at the bottom of the email or, um, Hey, I'm pregnant now. So could you please consider covering my maternity leave and better and alternate maternity care for me instead of encouraging me to go get an abortion and really giving those people the tools and the freedom to be like, they are not alone and how important those aspects of society and the economy are and not underestimating people. Cause I think we can all, we're all guilty of just getting in our own bubble um, and being like, well, I need to be on Fox News or I need to run for Congress in order to make a difference. And that is not the case at all. Yeah, I think that's so true. So what makes you a proponent of conservative conservatism and traditional values? What do you think makes these things important and gives women in particular a better shot at happiness and fulfillment through these traditional values that we're both, I think, big proponents of? Yeah, I think um, the ability to be created and treated as equals um, is something that I believe personally and professionally. Um, and then the reason specifically with conservatism that comes in is, and I think there's a faith component to this as well, is how everyone is unique. Uh, inserting the faith is like designed in the image of God, but even aside from faith, no two DNAs are the same, right? Scientifically, if you're looking at it, you and I are both female but we are both incredibly different in our genetic makeups. And it's actually kind of not fair because your parents are way smarter than mine. So I think <laughs> about that genetically. I've talked with my mom about this before. Like every Shapiro is so smart. Um, so, um, but I think that it, from the political perspective, it's understanding the beauty of that individualism and that um, independence and wanting everyone to have the right to make decisions for themselves and their own autonomy and then their own core family. And that as a society, when men and women get married, they tend to be more economically successful. They tend to be happier. They tend to um, take care of not only themselves and their families, but the community around them because of how it affects their family unit. And that culturally is, is a bonus. And it's a bigger bonus when the government gets out of the way and allows people to do that. Absolutely. Yes. I, I have nothing to add to that. I agree. <laughs> so let's talk feminism for a second, because I feel like anybody we're in a time where it's as if feminism is supposed to be recognized as obvious, as obvious truth by any woman. And if you're not explicitly, I'm totally feminist, right, then you must be anti-woman. So what are your thoughts on feminism? Do you think feminist ideology helps or hurts women? And I use the word feminism broadly here, but obviously yeah. if you want to like define it a little differently because there are so many different uses of that term, go for yeah. it. Yeah, I think it's fascinating to me that uh, this semester with my YAF speeches, I've been talking about feminism the most. In the past, it's been about why women need guns or school choice or pro-life issues, but it's it's interesting because it's circling back around and I've seen even influencers and commentators and friends on the left that have identified as very left-leaning feminists really taking issue with the movement as a whole. And I love to start my speeches when I talk about feminism with the dictionary definition, although dictionary definitions do change occasionally nowadays. So I've screen grabbed it and saved it just in case. <laughs> I, if, if we are looking at the dictionary definition of feminism, which, talk, which talks about the equality of the sexes, sign me up. I'm on board. I'm 100% a feminist. 
The problem is when you have Planned Parenthood and Nancy Pelosi and the AOCs of the world and Michelle Williams and the Women's March identifying what they think and mainstreaming their leftist agenda of feminism, then I think that people left, right, and center view that as feminism. And then everyone tells you, well, unless you are this, you cannot identify as a feminist. So I know I disagree. I think with you and even my girlfriend, Liz Wheeler, who are like, no, we're not feminists. I actually think like, yeah, much like I want to take over and and rebuild California, I think we need to take over and rebuild feminism because based on the definition of feminism, I would argue that I'm a feminist and that you are a feminist and that I'm raising feminist daughters. And I love to see people on the left like, ugh, when I say that. Um, but I think that it actually sometimes, and it has more, more so recently, opened up constructive dialogue and debate with women on the other side of the aisle because we can find areas in which we agree and then we can, um, in a friendly way, agree to disagree on other issues because I'm not going to budge on abortion and they may not either. But we can agree on the equality. We can agree on things that need to change culturally. We can agree on some things even that need to change politically. And so when we're just like feminism bad without defining what we are against, I think that that's a problem. I actually agree with you. I have been kind of... I've been trying to nail down how to approach this topic because I've always said, or initially I said, you know, feminism is something I agree with when it comes to the equality, right? We have mm -hmm. equal rights under the law, 100%. We are equal people. I mean, we have the same worth, but men and women are different. Now, when uh -huh. we move into the Christina Hoff Summers definition, I mean, that was the book that really like clarified things for me, her book on, on feminism. Yeah. Um, when she started talking about gender feminism and how there's a Marxist ideology underlying modern feminism, which says that women are always victims and men are always yeah. oppressors. Now we yeah. can't agree on that. I can't agree that women are better than men. I can't agree that men are going to always be winning, even when we have, you know, Taylor Swift making 300 worth $320 million. Yeah. I I think that women should have equal rights, right? I or think that Selena Gomez has as many followers on Instagram as Cristiano Ronaldo, right? Or yes. I could argue that women are better at some things like hello, having and making babies. Men can never <laughs> do that because they can't even handle a minor cold. But they also go into battle and they spend six months on an oil rig. That's not a job I want to sign up for. I don't think that's a job that you want to sign up for. Yes, exactly. And, and so I think that. And that's what I talk about in my feminism speech is celebrating the beauty and the differences and how when we see each other as cohesive partners and teammates, um, I mean, I feel like I'm almost talking about marriage, right? But it's like if men and women in society could treat each other like you kind of have to in a marriage, then professionally, it's going to be better. And professionally, we want women in the workplace because men stereotypically tend to not be very communicative or emotional creatures. And women are men and women report being happier and more successful at their jobs when they have a female boss. Why? Because a female boss will check in and be like, how you doing today, John? Everything okay at home? Not in a nosy or inappropriate way, but making sure that if he needs to get off at three o'clock to go to his son's basketball game, that's a possibility. A male boss ain't going to do that or isn't going to have the same level of caring or interest in that person like a woman is. And I think that that's an example of like, hey, if it's good for men and it's good for women, it's good for the economy, it's good for the cultural environment, why would we separate them? Um, mm -hmm. And so I think left, right, and center, there's definitely moves that can and should be made. But thank God we're in the United States because women here are a heck of a lot better off than in any other nation in the world. Absolutely. Yes. So you're a mama to three girls with another baby on the way. I don't know yeah. the I don't know the, the gender of your baby yet, but yeah. <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. I haven't announced yet. It's going to be lots of fun. <laughs> <laughs> You're constantly working in the movement, including travel for speeches around the country with Young America's Foundation, as we talked about. So how do you balance all of your responsibilities as a wife, mother and conservative commentator? I think that's like the top question that I get from my subscribers when they listen to my podcast. They I'm talking to all of these incredible women who are doing these incredible things who are also mothers. And they're kind of like, how do you do all of it? Um, you don't do it all. Uh, I'm in my 
mostly completely renovated kitchen that's taken a year and a half to do. Um, my husband helped me with the tech setup because I'm not tech savvy, uh, but he would never want to be on camera. I said last week, and I'll say again this week at a YAP speech that I could not be on the road if it weren't for my husband being an engaged father at home, uh, right? I have the freedom to do that because we're a team. Uh, he, unlike the stereotype, I'm currently barefoot pregnant in the kitchen. He's a much better cook than me. Like if, ask our girls any night of the week, they prefer daddy's food over mommy's food. Um, but it takes teamwork. Uh, I feel for incredible single mothers. And I think in that case, it really takes a village. And in, I mean, even in circumstances where I think it's amazing when religious organizations or churches or friend groups get together to help those single moms in those scenarios. So they can work and they can engage with their kids and they can pursue their dreams. Because I think it's really important for kids, boys and girls to see their mom and dad, um, not struggling per se, but really sacrificing for one another and sacrificing for the family to showing them like what it takes and that one day they can and should do the same for their family. I loved what Rihanna said. Um, when people are like, oh, are you sure you want to like do the Super Bowl halftime show? Like right after having a baby, because her baby wasn't even a year old. And of course she knew she was pregnant. Nobody else knew she was pregnant. She was like, no, I, that's exactly what I want to be doing. Cause I want my son to see that even after becoming a mother, it actually empowers me to do more. And I'm impassioned to do more. And so I just encourage those women. It's sometimes the laundry has to wait because you have to go do something. And then sometimes you need to like really learn to prioritize your time. And I've been married for almost 14 years and we have number four on the way. And I still feel like it's something I'm learning. So it's giving yourself some grace. My girlfriend, Mary Catherine Ham says this so well, she says, give yourself grace, but don't make excuses. And I think when you kind of take that through life, day in and day out, especially as a woman, because we are different and we have like mom guilt and bog ourselves down. There's also this element. And I used to say this on our lady brains podcast when we had it of like, when you're at home, sometimes like struggling to feel like you should be working. And then when you're in work mode, struggling and feeling like, should I be at home? (laughs) And I think that feeling, I don't know if it ever goes away, but I've learned how to process it and kind of self-diagnose it and be confident and like letting my yes be yes and my no be no and not wasting the time that I have in both of those spaces. Yeah, I think that that's been something I'm learning with only one one little baby that it's just all about prioritizing, time management and trying to be uh, find those people that you're like, you know what, if my baby can't be with me today, at least he's with his grandma or he's with his dad and that's for me i'm like you know what it's actually a good thing though not that i'm you know i I generally am home but for me like right now my mom put down my son for his nap and for me it's like you know what that's not a bad thing it's good for him to create a relationship with people outside of his mom and even though he knows that he has a secure attachment with me because i'll always be there at the same time it's not just me And that's a really beautiful thing for him is that he has a whole group of people who love him and care about him and want to take care of him. Well, and my kids are kind of social like me, go figure, (laughs) but each of them is different in how they interact with people or how they get to know people and how they engage. And I think that as a parent too, it is incredible to see from the moment that they're born, the differences of those personalities um, where my oldest, I could hand her to a stranger on the corner and she would be like, Hey, what's up? And smiling at six weeks old, but my middle like hated strangers for the first year of her life. And if you were a man without a beard, cause my husband has a beard, it's like, do not even look at her. Or she'd scream in your face. Um, <laughs> uh, she did that to Michael Knowles once I felt kind of bad. Uh, but it, And so, but, but now she like runs her little class and, she, and the teacher's like, Oh, she is such a leader. And like, everybody loves her. Um, and that the, so the scenario that you're surrounded saying with your mom is like when kids have a healthy home life and they can see the confidence and comfort that their parents are displaying, um, around other people, whether that's an auntie or a neighbor or a Sunday school teacher or grandparent, then it creates a safe environment for them to understand, okay, here's my mom and dad. This is the hierarchy, but these other people are trustworthy as well. 
And my husband and I talk about this all the time, especially as our kids are getting older, because we have an almost 10 year old now. And I'm like, before we know it, she's going to be like a preteen and then she's going to be a teenager. And we need to have people in our lives that we trust that she can trust because even the good kids like reach a point where they don't want to talk to their parents about everything. Right. And so you need to have those people in your community and in your life that you can lean on as a parent, but that your kids can eventually lean on as well. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. So I wanted to talk about homeschooling a little bit with you because I am, as my son is growing up and getting older, I'm getting more interested in the possibility of homeschooling as an option. And I know you grew up in Oklahoma, you were homeschooled. So what was your experience with it? Did you like it? Did you not? And what do you think are the benefits or maybe not the benefits? Do you have any tips or anything like that? Any thoughts you could share? Yeah, I am. And the older I get and the more children I have, (laughs) the more I think that there is no one size fits all for a family when it comes to education. Our two oldest are currently in the same school. And I'm like, this is amazing. It's easy. They seem to be doing well, but I've kind of Uh, seriously joked that this is a test year because I homeschooled our oldest and our niece for two years during COVID. Um, And so it was a, my oldest, like I said, she's, she's such a people person. She's Miss Congeniality. She could run for president one day. She has the ability to remember names and details. Like everybody says Bill Clinton did. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like she's she's incredible at that and she gets good grades. So she's my kid that I've been able to see now through third grade of being like, oh, maybe she's kind of the child that was made for the classroom. We did fine homeschooling, but I don't know how much longer based upon her learning ability and my teaching ability that I could have taught her maybe past like fifth or sixth grade. Cause I just taught my niece up to that level. And after that, I'm like, this gets a little more difficult and I'm not great at the math. Um, <laughs> my middle, our youngest will have to wait and see, um, They're all summer babies too. So I've held them back, but my personal experience with homeschooling, I absolutely loved it. Uh, Of the three girls, I'm the only one that my mom homeschooled all 12 years. It worked for us because we were in a rural area with really crappy schools at the time. My dad was a commercial airline pilot. So he had really weird hours where we'd take family vacation in November and he'd be home Sunday through Wednesday and then gone the rest of the week because of his, you know, travel and flight schedule. And so it really enabled me to have the freedom at 14 to get a job. And I always loved working and making my own money and um, taught me a lot of like time management skills that I think then helped me when I went to college and and entered a professional career because it kind of forced me to self-start and it forced me to time manage and instead of just being like told what to do. Uh, And so I think that those are huge benefits that it had and because it gave me the freedom of time to travel with my parents, to be on the campaign trail with my mom, to not be stuck in a schoolroom, to excel in English and history and literature and be held back a little bit because I wasn't great at algebra, right? Uh, That you don't typically get in a school environment. And so I think I just tell any parent, good for you, start with preschool. Like you can get a little curriculum for when he turns three, three and a half, four, understand that he's a boy. So he's going to be different than if you had a little girl who will sit there and like color and trace and be all excited. Like my three and a half year old does. Right. Um, and kind of just see how it goes. See if you are both thriving, um, because you want and need to be thriving and know that when you homeschool, there's going to be really awesome days where you're like, yeah, we did it. We checked all the boxes. We did all the subjects and we did the extra science project. Um, and then there will be other days that you're like, you know, this sight word, why are you not saying it when I hold up the card? Um, they are human too. And just like you and I have good days and bad days or good night's sleep and bad night's sleep. So will they, and that affects their performance and their demeanor and how they learn. Um, but I think, yeah, and I think so- that it's so important based off what you're saying. I really like the idea just, and it's true of parenting generally of just going off of your child, understanding your child's personality, what they need. Some kids, like you said, thrive in a school environment and other kids really don't. And don't, I know a few people who, whose parents 
took them out of school to homeschool them because they found that they had lost a love of learning. And so I think it really just depends on the kid. And that's important to keep in mind. Not everything is Mm -hmm. just going to be, okay, here's your path because this is the path everybody says and we're done. Like, no, you reevaluate and you go off the kid's personality. Yeah. And I think this is why I'm such an advocate for school choice, because I don't think even in one family, if you have three kids, every kid is going to need the same level of education or attention or environment to learn. Um, And I think that for some kids, it's a competitive nature, right? For some kids like my oldest, it's a congenial nature. Uh, it, It could be for some kids, they just like learn very well between these specific times and checking the box of their projects where other kids might need more ebb and flow and need to go into the woods to do science versus just reading about it in a textbook. Um, I often think, and, and I don't know, cause we don't have boys, but I look at boy moms that I know and I'm like, somebody needs to start like a wilderness school for little boys, because I don't think that a kid under the age of like seven or eight years old, like a boy, like you have belongs in a classroom because it just, is not a very conducive environment to just their personalities at that. And they're the way that they like need to touch and feel and play and, and wrestle and learn. Um, I and totally I agree really, with you. <laughs> and I think it's really sad that in American society, we strictly determine uh, a child's educational future, which will then turn into and uh, positively or negatively affect their future financial success based on where their parents can afford to live. And I don't 100%. see that as a partisan issue. I think that that's an issue that every mother in the country should be able to agree on. And I've often said if the California GOP wanted to start winning, this is an issue that they would run on because uh, data shows that over 70% of even liberal minority mothers in the state of California are pro-school choice. I believe it. I totally believe it. And it's like, for me, I just think to myself, and again, I don't know the stats on this, but just the number of boys who are told they have ADD, ADHD, it may be accurate, but it seems high based off of kids just not being able to sit in a classroom because they're boys and they want to move. (laughs) I just, I don't want to ever put, you know, that, that situation that worries me for my son is that he would be in a situation where people are thinking, oh, he has some sort of attention deficit disorder when it's really just he's a boy and he's a kid and he wants to move. Well, and, then, and then the bigger problem of that is, is then they want to drug him or they want right. to punish him or they want to delay him or put him in a special needs class because maybe they're getting an additional government grant for every seat in that special needs class that's filled. My mom is ADD. My older sister has ADD. Um, they've coped with it and lived with it for a very long time. And I mean, it gets on my nerves because she like sits there and like taps her fingers while you're you know talking and she's, but she can be extremely focused and extremely successful as a politician and small business owner uh, when she's like geared toward doing something that she is interested in. She's incredible and can do numbers in her head that I cannot do and remember stats that I cannot remember. Uh, and it's really honing that. And she always tells young moms that come to her, whether their kids are homeschooled or in public school. And, and they're like, what should I do? My seven-year-old, the teacher says he's a problem child. And he won't ever want to do his homework. And she's like, cut out the sugar, make sure they're getting enough sleep at night and make them run around the yard for like 30 minutes before you sit them down to do like school that they have to be physically kind of like get through that energy before they can tune into that like mental part of their brain because the physical at that age is just so it's normal. And it's really sad that our education system in this country is so geared towards that perfect little five-year-old girl that's going to sit there in her uniform and, you know, do her, her ABCs, like trace them just fine. Not every kid is like that, but we especially see a difference there between boys and girls. Absolutely. So I am so glad we got to do this interview. So now let's move into our faith talk. This week's Torah portion is Titzave, which means command. Uh, the Torah portion also is the Parsha in Hebrew. So in this week's Parsha, Chabad.org says, God tells Moses to receive from the children of Israel pure olive oil to feed the everlasting flame of the menorah, which Aaron is to kindle each day from evening till morning. Now, here's where we get into the meat of the Torah portion. We're talking about the priestly garments 
and everything that the priests wear in the tabernacle. So the priestly garments to be worn by the Kohanim, that's the priests, while serving in the sanctuary are described. All Kohanim wore the ketonet, which is a full-length linen tunic, linen breeches, a linen turban, a long sash wound above the waist. In addition, he also wore an apron-like garment made of blue, purple, and red-dyed wool, linen, and gold thread, a breastplate containing 12 precious stones inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, a cloak of blue wool with gold bells and decorative pomegranates on its hem, and a golden plate worn on the forehead bearing the inscription, Holy to God. There's also a section including the detailed instructions for the seven-day initiation of Aaron and his four sons into the priesthood and for the making of the golden altar on which the incense was burned. So this is the uh, the portion of the Torah. We're kind of going through a couple sections in Exodus that are much more law-focused and a little bit less story-focused. So my question is, why is there an entire Torah portion dedicated to what the high priest wears? Why are his clothes important? Who cares? Like, why Why did it even matter? Because it did matter. If he didn't wear the right clothing in the Holy Temple, he could be killed when he entered the Holy of Holies. Like, it was possible that God would be like, okay, you're done. So why is that? So this, to me, relates a lot to what I talk about on my channel regarding modesty. Our bodies are not entirely separate from our souls. Sometimes people think that our bodies hold us back or that the physical world inhibits our holy ascendance and closeness to God. But the truth is, is that our bodies are the gateway to being able to experience God's presence. By dressing in the holiest of garments when working in the tabernacle, as close to God as any person could be, the high priest is elevating his soul through what he wears. So what can we learn from this? What we wear matters. Wearing clothing that glorifies the body as separate from our souls or focuses on the sexuality of our body rather than its beauty as gifted by God takes us further from God's presence. When we dress modestly and beautifully, we are glorifying God's name. We are using our physical presence on earth to bring us closer to God. And that's a huge blessing. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts because modesty is a little bit of a touchy subject nowadays. And I also am very clear on my on my you know, channel, on my podcast, that modesty for me, what it looks like for me as an Orthodox Jew is very different than what I expect from like the average person. I'm just like, if you can cover your cleavage, cl- cover the bottom of your butt cheeks and cover your midriff, we're good. Like you're doing yeah. good. But I'd yeah. love to hear your thoughts on modesty. And I mean, if it relates to faith for you. Yeah, I think well, there's a the much like my political views, there could be the religious perspective and then like the scientific, like cultural perspective. And I think yeah. culturally for young women specifically, uh, and there's this mom that I follow uh, on Instagram. She had this whole thing about, cause her son like went to an eighth grade, like homecoming dance. And she's like the way that some of these girls were dressed and then how the mothers are like, oh, you know, well, everybody's doing it. So how do I tell her no? And she, so then she started posting like all these pictures of like, Chippendales type people and she's like is this who you want to roll up and be like well you know my son's in a thong because everybody's doing it and like if boys were doing the same thing how would people react right they'd be like oh they're so creepy they're so predatory but like when young women do it it's like supposedly no big deal um when we over sexualize them um so I think that secularly and culturally we have studies that show that women who are promiscuous that women that dress a certain way um, ne- have negative experiences with their own self-esteem, their own self-worth, their self-consciousness, like so many things, depression, anxiety, they tend to be more promiscuous. They tend to have then more physical and emotional ailments from, from that like activity and secular studies showing like that is not good for women. Um, and I love that, even though I would take it from the Christian perspective of, um, being complete in Jesus and our body being a temple and my mother like kind of hounding that into me as a kid of like it's not just your outward appearance that that you're exuding and representing you know your faith and your family but it's like what you choose to put in and do with your body as well like um 
whether that be destroying your lungs through smoking or using recreational drugs or overusing alcohol or choosing to be morbidly obese, one of the seven deadly sins, right? Um, of how we are supposed to take care of our temple. And that includes like what we're putting out in the world. And I think that I like to look nice. I want to look like sexy for my husband and pretty on camera, but there's like a lot in between in there <laughs> and that it's possible to be feminine and attractive and classy and not dress like, you know, people that you see on OnlyFans. Right, exactly. And it's so sad because it's like Instagram and OnlyFans in many ways are indistinguishable, except one is free and one is not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if if you look at like when I remember un- like reading about the description of OnlyFans and what people wouldn't would not be doing over there and like Bella Thorne and some other people were like, well, I'm going to go over there because at least I can make money. And I'm like, how is that any different than like what the car, car Jenners do? I mean, how is yes. it any different than you know, what a lot of celebrities are posting on their Instagram. And by the way, they're still making money for it because uh, as Chris Rock said in his latest special, that's the number one way to make money is show your. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, it's funny. I have a friend on Instagram who has talked to me. We've talked to each other about this because we're both more like traditional. We both are modest on our Instagram posts. And we've said, you know, if we just did this, if we just exposed one area of our bodies, we would go up 200,000 followers the next day. Like, (laughs) but we would never do it because to us, it's not, it's a hundred percent not worth it, obviously. But even more than that, it's just not, it's not good for you as a person and people who, you know, look, I am very used to being sexualized on the internet at this point. It really doesn't matter what I post, but at the end of the day, I can Yeah, it doesn't matter what I post. It doesn't matter how covered I am. It doesn't matter. But at the end of the day, the people who are going to sexualize me, who are choosing to sexualize me, the trolls would sexualize me no matter what. But that doesn't mean that I have to then lean into it and give them an opportunity to see things that are, to me, precious and to my husband, precious. And private. Yeah. And private. And it means that that's what I don't get about the Emily Ratajkowski's or um, you know, even like the Lena Dunham's of the world, they're like, well, it's my body. And I, if I control what's out there, then I have control. And, and it's like, but then why are you revealing that intimate part of yourself? Like why it's just like revealing intimate information. Right. Um, and another thing that, you know, Chris Rock said in his special, it's like, well, I can do this inner, like this, a uh, sex act on somebody and not have not, not never call her back. I mean, it's crap, but it's, funny because it's true but he's like Mm -hmm. I remember how many women whose hands I've held right (laughs) and it's almost like if I were a public school teacher teaching sex ed I would just like clip that and be (laughs) like so yeah maybe you should be careful of who you're engaging with and who you're showing your body to and who you're giving yourself to because no offense to men they really don't care and have one track minds and (laughs) they will remember whose hand they held or who they told they loved for the first time Um, But they're not going to remember you for the hot bikini shot other than it being a brief moment of like sexual pleasure for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that right there is (laughs) exactly it. And the thing that we should all keep in mind moving forward. (laughs) So now let's move into my premium subscriber questions. If you are interested in becoming a premium subscriber to my Substack, make sure to head over to classicallyabby.substack.com where you'll get access to a ton of exclusive content, including my book club, as well as weekly exclusive articles and being able to submit questions for podcasts just like this. So let's head into question number one, which is, it seems like women are being erased. What are the best ways to fight back? Um, I would say my daily motto of, of what we tell our girls to be is strong, sweet, and smart. And when you are a strong, sweet, and smart woman, you cannot be erased, even as much as society tries to tell us that men transitioning to women are better at being women than we are, which I find really personally insulting for women everywhere. Uh, and, and I think really just being confident a part of that inner strength is being confident in like your purpose and and your calling and like that helps you move through every single day it helps you move through every moment uh whether it's good bad or ugly it helps you move through a week it helps you move through the month and like plan for the future and when you have a trajectory that you are confident 
um, in pursuing and know that you're on the right path, people can try to tamp you down and can try to erase you and try to highlight masculinity over femininity or men trying to be feminine and culture currently lauding that. But I don't know. I think that it, that's going to crumble and it already is crumbling. And this too shall pass when it comes because when even feminists on the left are like, hey, this isn't what I signed up for. You know, the, the left has a problem in this battle that they've so chosen. Yeah, I think that really it starts with being brave enough, which is a ridiculous thing to say, but it's being brave enough to say, yes, men and women are different. Men cannot become women. That's mm -hmm. it. Let's mm -hmm. start there. And if we mm -hmm. can just say men are not women, they are not the same, then you can be confident in you as a woman and what being a woman means, because it means so much. Yeah. And and I think that it's important. I Sometimes women on the left criticize me of like, oh, well, you only value womanhood if it means making babies. And I'm like, no, it doesn't, because I have many friends who literally cannot bear their own children. I have many friends who are single by choice or childless by choice. And the individual freedom part of me is like, hey, being a mother was like the greatest blessing that I've happened upon. <laughs> and and I, and I hope that others want to pursue that as well. I think it's good for them individually and as society, but I don't have a problem with women who choose not to or cannot to follow that same like fam path for a family and what a family may or may not look like to them. There are so many other intricacies of who women are other than just being these childbearing things. And it's so funny that women specifically and even men on the left. Sorry, we have a, a crying baby. Quick interruption for my baby who just woke up from his nap, very angry that uh, I wasn't the one to pick him up, but his grandma picked him up, so he's okay. So go ahead and continue from where we left off. My, my three-year-old's probably currently getting hangry while she hangs out with her Mimi. Um, <laughs> I think it's fascinating, though, that that argument tends, even though the left likes to label like rich white Republican men as the ones that want us to be the baby bearers that, you know, live in this... Uh, society like handmaid's tale it tends to be the people on the left that are arguing with me as a working wife and mom and kind of doing it all right and i say doing it all in quotations because can't ever do it all or have it all that they're attacking me for my life choices doing what i want with my body using an argument that they say the other the bad guys use so it, i just always find that laughable <laughs> Yeah. And I think fair enough. I mean, my take on on womanhood is that womanhood is more is in our nature. And then whether or not we can have children, you know, that is still going to be expressed in ways that we don't necessarily expect. Right. So being nurturing is so inherent to womanhood that even if you don't have children, you're going to end up being nurturing in other ways that are really important. Feminine strength is so beautiful and it's not only shown through motherhood, it's just exemplified in motherhood. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I, I would agree. And there's areas in which like, if you even look statistically at, um, the types of jobs that women tend to go into and excel at compared to the types of jobs that men go into and excel at. That is a perfect example of how it speaks to our nature uh, and our innate abilities and skills and differences that I think are a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. So question number two is I've seen on your Instagram, you talk about being a doula and a big proponent of home births. Can you talk mm -hmm. more about that? Yeah, this will be my fourth home birth uh, with my midwife, who's amazing. And if you're in LA, DM me and I'll send you her info. Uh, and I just have like doulaed for a handful of friends and taken an online course and uh, really just kind of happened where friends were like, can you be there to support me? Most special is probably being there for my little sister for the birth of my first nephew. She just had her second nephew and they're just so cute. Um, and I think that it is such a beautiful thing because it really, I always joke, like I am not a sports person when everybody compared uh, labor and delivery to running a marathon, I was like, but I hate running. Um, <laughs> and I always tell people, I'm like, I'm the biggest wimp on the face of the planet. And if I can do it, anyone can do it. 
but this has really, I think this experience and then other health experiences that I've had in the last year or two have really opened my eyes to the lack of informed consent when it comes to women's health in the country, uh, whether it's birth control or the COVID vaccine or abortion or a whole bunch of other issues. Uh, I really just want women to be completely informed and to be their own advocates. And we have to be our own advocates when it comes to our full mental, physical, emotional health, because the medical community as a whole in the United States ain't good at representing our best interests. I mean, even up until what, like 70 years ago, they were just doing studies on men and thought like the male liver and the women's liver like work totally the same or the brain, our brains work totally the same. Like turns out they're not and our hormones are not. And we got other parts that they don't, um, hence why they can't become us. And so I also give this example and had some leftists in, in a recent speech actually be like, oh, we agree with you on that point. Because I was like, if the left truly cared about women, uh, then they would be advocating for as many studies to be done about pregnancy challenges, specifically when it comes to minority groups in the country that are really mistreated by the medical community and not listened to and not advocated for. Um, and they would be spending, uh, I don't know, maybe more than $10 million a year looking at pre-menopausal and menopausal issues that affect every single woman in the world compared to the $90 billion that they choose to spend on erectile dysfunction medication and studies. Um, so I, it's where my, I kind of become like a hippie um, and anti, I'm not anti-doctors. I'm not anti like science, God bless them. It's needed, it's necessary. I'm just pro women being their own advocate and becoming informed and choosing a practitioner, whether that's birth center, hospital or home that is going to serve them and their medical needs. And while they enter into like one of the most challenging and beautiful days of their lives. I love that because I feel like it is, I feel like I'm not always uh, one of many when I'm like taking a huge interest in the process of birth, pregnancy, labor, all of that, because I, I think it is fascinating. And so yeah. I think it's really important for women, as you say, no one is going to be a better advocate for you than you. Your doctor is not always going to be the best at making a tailor-made plan for you as opposed to just the patients he sees. And that doesn't mean he's a bad doctor. It just means that yeah. if you don't know enough to ask the right questions, you may not get the care you wanted. And if you want to have a great birth experience, then being more informed can only help. It can't hurt. Yeah. And any doctor or midwife or nurse midwife or nurse or anybody who questions you, <laughs> that's your sign to get out the door. <laughs> I think that's a good piece of advice. <laughs> so as a mom of three daughters, what are some lessons you want to teach them about navigating the modern world? Oof. Uh, try to keep them off a cell phone as long as possible. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's, yes. That's like something <laughs> I'm going to teach them about the modern world. Um, I, I think it's so interesting. Like every age has its different questions and challenges. And even from the time that they were like one asking why, you know, your son's going to start that soon. It's like mama, dada, and why, or like the, oh, and no, um, <laughs> no. The words that they tend to like spew first, I would be like, no, ask a complete question or ask a complete sentence. And it's amazing and fun to see the things that they observe in the world. And then the questions that they come up with. So I feel inadequate 90% of the time to answer those questions, but really, uh, thinking about how I answer them and answering them in an age appropriate, but detailed way. So they're never doubtful of me or their dad having the answers to like what's happening in the world and life's problems. And, you know, living in Los Angeles, you see homeless people on the street. Well, why is that person, you know, asking for money? Why, why do we give that person fruit? Like, why does he, his sign say he's hungry? Um, why do so-and-so and such and such have a baby and they're not married? That's those questions are just going to naturally come up when you're a parent. And sometimes you like can mentally prepare for them and sometimes you can't. And, and so I think that my biggest thing though, is obviously we're instilling in them Judeo-Christian values, but I don't talk to them about politics. I don't um, really, they know that mommy's on TV sometimes and travels for speeches, but I don't even know if they know what they're about. 
And I would love it if I could keep it that way for, for as long as possible. And for them to come to their own independent conclusions on like what their core beliefs are just based on how they see their father and I operate in our everyday lives. That's beautiful. Answers the question. (laughs) You know what? I I like it. And then to me that that's exactly what it should be is, Mm -hmm. you know, I think often we see people kind of inculcating values in their children without giving them necessarily the basis or understanding for why they have those values. They're just like, this is what it is. And this is what's right. And Mm -hmm. It's it's a dangerous game to play when they get to college and all of a sudden they're being faced with something that's entirely different than what they grew up with. And they don't know necessarily why they're believing what they believe, as opposed to, oh, I saw everything around me. I asked questions. I learned about where I stand. And that is why I believe what I believe. Yeah. And I think that there are things that and my parents did a really good job of that. And even though I was in this like Bible belt bubble, we still traveled. We still knew people that thought and lived their lives differently than us. And my parents did engage me. And it wasn't often that they were like, because I said so. Sometimes as a parent, you do have to say that. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) why don't we jump on the couch? Because I said so. (laughs) But, But I think it is so important. And even at 18, I joke that I've spent all my adult life in liberal meccas. But I think that it's like, much like conservative students on college campuses today, it really hones you and challenges you in those personal beliefs and can build on what your parents taught you or um, were an example of to you. And it doesn't mean that it'll be easier to come to those conclusions. It doesn't mean that it'll be easier to live your life in that way uh, with those core principles and morals. But I think it helps you have a better foundation for that future and for those struggles and those questions that you'll be asked not just asking yourself, but complete strangers asking you as well. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely true and accurate. So <laughs> the last question that we've got here is uh, we kind of touched on it at the very beginning. So now we're round, we're coming all the way back, which is you've been vocal about staying in Los Angeles and fighting the good fight. What makes you think you should stay as the state is, ter- it feels like is turning bluer and bluer? Yeah. And my husband and I have been here for 10 years now, which is crazy to think about. Um, we uh, have like a small community of people. There's all, once again, like most of my answers, there's like the mainstream kind of like secular scientific answer and then political answer. And then there's like the faith answer. So th- my first answer would be the more political one, which is as our uh, four-time infamous former governor, Jerry Brown often said, as goes California, so goes the nation. Um, whether there's a Republican in the White House and holding the House and the Senate, or whether that's uh, held by Democrats, you see the leaders of California become the leaders of the left and the leaders of think tanks and the leaders of uh, PACs and Democratic Party at all different levels of bureaucracy and government on the federal level. And you see the bad ideas that were implemented here trickling down to even the reddest of states like Texas, Tennessee, and Florida. Um, In some of those states, you guys have better ability to fight it, but it's still happening. Um, Additionally, I think the culture war from a political perspective is important. And it's really been interesting since COVID and since uh, friends, like I teased Dave and Dave Rubin for abandoning us and, you know, doing the New York Jewish thing and like relocating to South Florida, like what New York Jew doesn't do that, right? Um, but, <laughs> and your brother and others. Uh, but um, I, I, on a serious note, it's been really interesting to see libertarian, independent thinking, even like classical liberal minded people come out of the woodwork and I meet them at events or functions that are not like FOA conservative type gatherings, right? They're not like flag waving anti-vax rallies, uh, cocktail parties and screenings and, uh, you know, lunches out uh, in Beverly Hills where people are like, thank you for not leaving. Thank you for fighting because I felt so abandoned. And I'm finding more people like me in the industry that work for Apple TV, that work at Netflix, that work at Google, that are kind of like open to having a discussion and we're not okay with the wokeism that's happening. And we know that if it happens at these corporations here, and if we don't put a stop to it here, it's going to be affecting like the small businesses and other corporations all over the country. So that's like my political answer to that. 
my religious answer is, um, you know, when in the old Testament, God is talking about, uh, like when he's dialoguing and I just went blank, it's not Joshua, but, um, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, like God, how many people will it take and, and how many people will it take to save a city? And I am a not perfect. You're one of the 10. (laughs) Yeah. Is it the 10? And I wouldn't even say, I would not be vain enough or self-righteous enough to say that I'm one of the 10. But I guess my question from a religious perspective is like, who are we to say there's no one left here to save? Yeah. Um, And that's not my position to say that. And it's not my position. I don't think to abandon the people that are here that need to be saved. And uh, we have friends on the mission field in other countries. And we have friends that are on the mission field here. And we cannot Mm -hmm. forget the mission field here. And my husband and I, for the 10 years that we've lived here, every year, every few months, are like, we good? We going to stay? How are we doing? What are we supposed to do? And during COVID, when everyone was leaving and there are post-apocalyptic skies because of fires and helicopters because of the riots, I remember having a kind of like internal freakout moment of like, is this like, should we like pack up and go to a cabin in the woods? Like, what the heck? And he was like, we're not going to flee in fear, but we're not going to stay because of pride. And so for us, I think that's where we try to step in day in and day out of like, we're not going to stay because of pride, but we're not going to flee in fear. And like, what's our individual purpose? And then what's our family purpose? And until we have a different answer on from God of what that is, we're staying. Well, I'm glad that you are. I'm glad that we've got somebody back there <laughs> fighting the good fight. It's important. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on thank my you. podcast. Thanks for yeah, having well, me. It's been a lot of fun. Tell us where we can find you, where we can follow you, all the places. Well, just on social media, your brother once told me I have a Jewish dude's name. So it's E-L-I-S-H-A-K-R-A-U-S-S. And that's where I am on Instagram, Twitter, my website. Uh, yeah, so... If my Instagram stories are like my brain, I actually find that Instagram is my favorite platform. I'm like, nah, on Twitter, even before Elon bought it. Um, <laughs> so, but you can find all my thoughts there. And uh, I usually post all my interviews like this there as well. Perfect. So everyone give Alicia a follow and we will, I will see you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.